Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast where we take an in-depth look at the films of action icon Dolph Lundgren. Today we're discussing the 1995 thriller Hidden Assassin, also known as The Shooter. In this action chase thriller, Lundgren plays Michael Dane, a U.S. Marshal sent to Prague to apprehend a woman who is suspected of assassinating the Cuban ambassador to the U.N. Yet things aren't what they seem, and Dane begins to question everything as he races to stop more assassinations from occurring at a political summit. Agent Michael Dane was trained to keep his distance. Shooters here in Prague, Simon Rosset. In two days, the city of Prague will host a summit between the U.S. and Cuba. Now that's a room full of targets. Not to get too close. My friend is innocent. This target doesn't fit her profile. It was a signature job, Nikki. And never get personal. Are we clear? Clear. But this time, the rules have changed. Now, wanted by his own men, they have 48 hours to bring in the assassin before more blood is shed. There has to be an explanation. Take her back there and put one between her eyes. When there's no one you can trust. Maybe she's the guy, maybe she isn't. Who do you believe? Dolph Lundgren, Marushka Detmer's Hidden Assassin. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me to chat this film today is Travis Bowe of the Real Comic Heroes podcast, as well as the Watchmen Minute. Travis, thank you so much for coming on today, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, and I know that this uh, this film was not at the at the top <laughs> at the top of your list of uh, of things to discuss. But you know what? What's funny is this period of of Lundgren's career, he was working quite steadily. But uh, I, I'd say that this period of his films are the films that are not really widely known. I guess if you're you know obviously if you're a fan of Lundgren or if you're like a hardcore action junkie then of course you may know about this film. But to the to the rest of the public, it's it's one of those films that uh, has really gone under the radar. Yeah, uh, I had never heard of this movie actually before uh, uh, you, you offered it up to me. So, Well, and he actually, he followed up the excellent Men of War with this, with this, I think, somewhat subdued and moody thriller. And now you were familiar with Men of War, is that right? I vaguely remember seeing, uh, you know, a few minutes of it uh, when I was a kid, but uh, you know, I, I had certainly heard of the familiar enough with the title. And before we get into the, you know, the film and everything that uh, that happens in the film, uh, I'm just curious. Uh, tell us a little bit about about your podcast. So you host two podcasts, is that right? Correct. Real Comic Heroes and The Watchmen Minute. Yep. Okay. Tell us a little bit about uh, Real Comic Heroes. Okay. Yeah. Um. It's been going on for about uh, coming up on three years, and uh, my co-host Patrick and I, we go through um, a big list of movies that we established at the at the very beginning. And we go through this list of comic book, um, sci-fi, uh, James Bond, Planet of the Apes, like 
Indiana Jones, the Star Wars, and all the Star Trek movies, as well as comic book movies. Like we've compiled this big list, and then we go through uh, chronologically and revisit these movies one at a time, and uh, review them, and just see how they hold up. See, you know, what the we we try to come away with the most heroic and most villainous moment in the movie, um, and then give them a rating. So. We we started with Superman and the Mole Men from 1951. And, oh, wow, you're going way back. <laughs> yeah, and we could have gone back further with some of the Flash Gordon serials and uh, some of the old Republic stuff. There was, you know, like a what the like a Batman movie from the from 1943, I think that was like maybe it was serials, but you know, so we could have gone a little bit further back, but we decided to, to start with Superman. Um, and then have, have been working our way, uh, you know, towards the present. And currently as of this recording, we're in, uh, we're firmly, or we're almost done with the eighties actually. And uh, we're in like 1987. Uh, we just recorded, um, inner space and live and let die. Uh, we're coming up on RoboCop. So, um, some good late eighties, uh, action and and sci-fi and stuff so well and i i i love the approach that you're taking with these films a lot of people seem to have forgotten that for the longest time marvel comics could not get a decent movie made i mean you know people seem to have forgotten that that period in the late 80s you know early to mid 90s where marvel sure. you know they had filed for bankruptcy and they were trying desperately to get a decent film uh, made and I will I'll put my hat out there right now if um, if if you guys are looking for someone to discuss both uh, Lundgren's The Punisher or the uh, the Captain America that was made with uh, with Matt Salinger I have tons of cool information about those films and maybe they do not well the Punisher I think still holds up but as far as um, Captain America maybe that one does not hold up but I and, and people are gonna throw stones at me for saying this but I honestly think that that version of Captain America, um, I think it was a pretty valiant effort on everybody who was working on it. They had no money whatsoever in filming that film. But um, I think considering what they had to work with and what they were doing, if you look at it from, I think, from that from that stance, it's it, it's a it's it's an it's a decent movie, you know. Right. Right on. Yeah. Um, I, I'm pretty sure we do have you um, on our schedule for. For the Punisher, so no worries there. And uh, yeah, I'll uh, I'll put your name down for Captain America. What was that? Nineteen ninety? Uh, I believe it was. It was filmed in eighty nine, um, but it came okay. out in nineteen ninety. But you know what's what's so cool about it? Again, the fact that you're going in chronological order is, you know, if you remember, you know, nineteen eighty nine. That's when Batman was the craze. That's when you know, oh, yeah. was, that, that was Batmania. And so, if you look at the 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 Captain America version. Um, it's, it's not as dark as Tim Burton's Batman, but it is sure. compare it with the current, uh, Marvel cinematic interpretations. It does have a little bit of a darker edge. It definitely doesn't have the, the humor that you see in a lot of those Marvel, Marvel films today. And I, I can't help but wonder if that was kind of Batman's influence on that. And that, that's why I, you know, I think real comic heroes, your show is kind of similar in a way to this one, because I feel like when you're going in chronological order, and you are looking in, in, in the case of this show, you're looking at an actor, but in the, in the case of your show, you're looking at a genre. I feel like you really, you really, and I've said it before, but you really develop 
so much, uh, such a greater appreciation of the art form because then you get to see where, you know, where, where the genre or in, the, in this case of the show, where the actor has gone, where the actor has grown, where the directions that that particular genre has gone. And, you know, I have a lot of people who have been asking me, well, when are you going to get to the Expendables? I can't wait for you to get to the Expendables. <laughs> I would love to get to the Expendables, but I feel like I feel like if I just you know picked from various eras, then I'm not going to get that that full, um, well-rounded, um, glossed view of of his body of work. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And you know, we we thought about jumping around in the timeline and you know hitting movies just um, either. Uh, wherever we felt like recording a certain, you know, say start with a with a Spider-Man, you know, marathon and just and just record reviews of all the Spider-Man movies and then move on to something else. But my my OCD, you know, com- completionist nature uh, is is was too too strong, um, and so I didn't want to. I couldn't fathom the idea of you know, say we we cover all of the Iron Man movies and then we move on to Batman. And then a year later, a new Iron Man movie comes out. Well, now that that one's not going to fit in the chronology of our, you know, our series of recordings. So to me, it it just helped to go to just plan from the start to go uh, chronologically. And I think it works out really well. I think it's, it's definitely improved our experience going through these movies because you do get a better sense of how things have been, you know, would have been done 20 years ago. Like we're seeing incredible differences in terms of special effects. I mean, we just did inner space, you know, last night and we're blown away by how, um, how well the special effects, you know, when they're miniaturized and he's in the, uh, basically the submarine inside of Martin short and he's kind of swimming around and just how great the, you know, the special effects look for the, what is essentially the inside of the human body and they won an Oscar for it. And so it's interesting to be able to see that and think about movies like, you know, alien or star Wars that came out, you know, almost 20. Well, you know, 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier, and just to be able to see where, where, how things have progressed. And, and it's been, been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, most definitely. I agree with you. You know, I remember, um, I actually remember in 2002 when Spider-Man was released and I remember I was just, when that, when that came out, it was, it was like, wow. I mean, they had finally, you know, finally we had gotten a comic book movie because I mean, they had been doing comic book movies pretty regularly but if you remember throughout the the 90s to mid you know i'd say the mid 90s to the early 2000s they were you know picking up you know x-men withstanding of course but if you remember hollywood was um they were they were still doing comic book movies but they were kind of tapping into the more independent comic books you know they had judge dread and and the mask phantom yeah exactly but you know i remember when spider-man came out and I, i remember a co-worker telling me when he first saw it he actually got and this sounds a little silly but i mean he actually got a little misty eyed and he got a little teary eyed because you know here they had taken a beloved comic book character who so many held near and dear to him i mean captain america was always my favorite i was never a big spider-man fan but i i do remember 
that feeling as well. And it was just like, wow, when you saw it on screen and you saw everything unfold, it was, it was amazing to see. And I think you kind of like you were saying, you appreciate it so much more considering everywhere the genre had been and how far they had come. I mean, if you would look at then, yeah. for example, the 1990 Captain America, or even Roger Corman's 1994 Fantastic Four, and then you look at Sam Raimi's Spider-Man in 2002, it's it's just amazing that they finally had it done. Having said that, if you look at Sam Raimi's Spider-Man nowadays, it's really amazing because it's one that doesn't hold up. I mean, isn't that kind of weird? It, it came out, what, what <laughs> 12, 13 years ago, whatever, but um, it's it, it, it doesn't hold up as well as it did back then. But like, right. Like you said, if you're going in chronological order, you you get to see the progression. You get to see how the how the genre has grown. Yeah. And I I can completely relate to uh, your, your friend who got misty eyed at Spider-Man because the same thing happened to me. Yeah. You know, I remember seeing it opening night and at the very end when he's you know, swinging through the city, just, you know, uh, getting a little teary eyed because it. On one level, I was, I felt like I was actually seeing Spider-Man, you know, in real life for the first time. And on the other hand, it, it hit me like, um, whatever, like immature back of my head, like, you know, that, that childish dream of like, well, one day, what maybe somehow I could get, you know, superpowers, you know, just from growing up reading comics and watching cartoons and that stuff you know there's a little part of you that's like you know you daydream about you know having superpowers yourself and then you know this was kind of one of those moments it was like well it's never never going to happen you know yeah. this is real life and and it, that's never going to be you know happen to me and so seeing spider-man made me kind of wake up or finally finally grow out of that you know uh, uh feeling or whatever and it, that was a little overwhelming, but I was still happy that I was seeing it, you know, represented on screen with with my favorite, you know, character. So yeah, most definitely, most definitely. Well, cool. Well, like I said, I'm uh, I'm I'm just so excited for this. Thank you so much for for coming on. Uh, and before we get into the film, I'm just curious. I always like to ask all the guests. Um, you are obviously familiar with with Dolph Lundgren. Um. But yeah, you didn't know about this film. So what what is uh, what is your experience with with Lundgren over the years? What films of his have you seen and and did you enjoy? Um, he, honestly, he will always be He Man to me. Um, <laughs> that would have been my that would have been my first exposure. That was my um, gateway as well. Yep. <laughs> yeah, because what was that eighty? That's eighty seven, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would have been, you know four at the time but uh i remember you know being into he-man or being into the cartoon having the toys and then at some point just coming across this movie someone showed it to me and i it just you know blew me away and i remember being a kid and then and then not seeing it for years and years and and there being kind of a weird feeling of like did i dream a he-man movie you know like not having access to it because i couldn't just you know pull it up on netflix or uh, you know or find it on amazon and have it you know sent to my house or whatever so it went through this weird period of time where it was like well i think i saw a he-man movie once and i don't know I, I maybe i'll never see it again you know that weird like 
abyss where, you know, if, unless they play it on TV, you you may not ever see this movie again, but luckily the, the it, I think I was a fairly young teenager and I was flipping through you know, the channels and it was just on and I was like, oh, here it is again, you know? So finally got to kind of watch it again and, and fell in love with it again as a teenager. And then, you know, let it go for a couple more years. And then I finally got the DVD as a, a you know, young adult and I've watched it now a few times, you know, over the years. And yeah, it's just one of those movies that takes me back to my childhood and it still holds up. I, I stand by it. It, it sure does. It still it, holds I, up. Yeah, I agree. Um, so that's that to me that when I think of Dolph Lundgren, I think of that, you know, painted art cover for the for some of like the, the movie posters of him just standing there, you know, heroic in the, oh, the, in the body. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's Dolph Lundgren to me. And then, you know, in the last few years, I've, you know, I we've on Real Comic Heroes, we've covered, you know all the James Bond movies to this point and, you know, seeing him in things like uh, a view to a kill, you know, that's always a nice little uh, surprise, just kind of seeing him pop up in the background. And, you know, honestly, if for being a background character, he takes it, he's like in the center of the screen and it's, you can't not notice him. Yeah. Um, So that's always fun. And then, you know, things like the Punisher, I remember seeing um, as a, you know, young adult and, and kind of liking it. And, and before the, the other Punisher movies came out. So that was always cool. I remember like the sci-fi channel would run the Dr. Strange TV movie, some of the incredible Hulk stuff, some of the, the amazing Spider-Man TV movie. And I think the Punisher, just whatever, like Marvel you know, movies that, that existed, they kind of ran back then. So I think that's how I saw it the first time. So Okay. Uh, so that's kind of my Dolph Lundgren. I, I've never been the the action movie side of him as far as like the Men of War and um, Showdown in Little Tokyo, like stuff like that. Like even even um, Universal Soldier like that. That's never really been my go to like Dolph Lundgren uh, vehicle. OK, OK. Well, and, you know, and for all intents and purposes, you know, I think he is even to this day, he's still best known as Ivan Drago and as He-Man. Sure. And then you have Showdown in Little Tokyo and Universal Soldier. And that was, I kind of like to refer to it, that was kind of like his his golden era, if you will. And so he followed up Universal Soldier. This is kind of about where his where his star power had started to kind of hit the, the direct-to-video market. And so a lot of the films that he was doing, actually pretty much all of the films that he was doing, we're going direct to video. And the one that we're talking about today, Hidden Assassin, like I said, um, I know this is one that you had no idea about. You had never heard of. Um, hopefully, hopefully you you enjoyed watching it. But, you know, I will say that this was a different role for Lundgren, because at this point in his career, you know, he had played soldiers. He had played killing machines. He had played other larger than life characters, such as He-Man. But in this role, he is once again playing just a regular guy, which is something that he, you know, he had done before, but not a heck of a lot in his career. Sure. Yeah, this particular role, I, I think that this one is actually similar to a role, as I was watching it, it's similar to a role that he had done earlier 
Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the film Cover Up. No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think you would be. <laughs> um, Cover Up is another one of those films that he had done early in his career. I think that was about nine, 1991. Um, that's extremely unnoticed. But in this film, uh, his role is Michael Dane. And I, I, I don't know if you felt this or not, but this particular role, this is something that I think could have really been played by anybody. I mean, I, I, as I was watching, I could see, um, and I said this with, with cover-up as well, but I could see uh, uh, Michael Douglas in this role. I could see Harrison Ford, um, Kurt Russell, you know, in this particular role. It isn't until the third act of the film where we really get to see this is Dolph. I mean, it really isn't until those final 20 minutes where it becomes an action picture and Lundgren is, I mean, he is, he is Dolph Lundgren on screen and he is kicking ass. But for the first, yeah. for the first hour of the movie, it's it's pretty much just a chase film. He's chasing a female suspect, and we're going to be getting into this. I will say right now, I have to question his abilities as a U.S. Marshal because <laughs> he's he he loses her more times than he catches her. And it's um yeah the the first hour it's just it's essentially just a chase move. But but yeah, right. I, I was what what is your take on that? Um, well, you hit one of my points about it, it doesn't. This isn't a what I would have thought of as a typical Dolph Lundgren movie, you know, um, I, one of my notes was that, you know, it just about anybody could play this character. It doesn't require, it doesn't require someone to have his size. You know, typically it seems like he's, he's cast for the, you know, having the, the height or the, the physique, you know, um, but yeah, this, this movie could have been played by pretty much anybody, you know, it felt, um, felt a little bit diehard at times um, just with the like when he sustains an injury it, that injury affects him throughout the rest of the movie yeah and that's something you don't get a lot with action movies you know someone you know uh, Schwarzenegger might get shot in the shoulder and then he'll just you know put his hand on it on it to cover it up for a few seconds and then he'll wince and then you know the chase is on again and he's fine for the rest of the movie but yeah. here that that arm injury that he inflicts upon himself, you know, it, it has, you know, not consequences, but it, it, it affects him throughout the rest of the movie. It's so, showing that he's vulnerable I, and he's human. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I really appreciated that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I also like that it was something that it didn't require his size but yeah, um, I did notice, you know, towards the second half of the movie and especially, yeah, that third act, it's it becomes more of an action movie that seemed to be more in line with his, you know, skills. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say I will say it right now. Um, I, I think I enjoy those final 20 minutes so much more than the than the first hour of the film. I just think the final 20 minutes. Yeah. When- when pretty much the shit has hit the fan and, you know, he knows what he needs to do. I, I think that's where it, it really comes alive. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, But, you know, on the offset, um, this had some real talent behind it. Um, not only is it starring our man of the hour, um, but it was also directed by Ted Kotcheff. Uh, Ted Kotcheff is probably best known as the director of the original First Blood film, as well as directing North Dallas 40. Uh, fun fact about him. He also directed Weekend at Bernie's. I just think that's, yeah. that's so weird that I found that too. Yeah. Um, he's actually, I, I don't know if you've seen Weekend at Bernie's, but actually, oddly enough, I watched it about oh, yeah. uh, five, six months ago. And he actually cameos in the film. He plays Jonathan Silverman's father 
in that scene in the first 15 minutes. But yeah, in later years, he went on to directing mostly TV movies. But I mean, this was this film was not directed by just some run of the mill, uh, you know, hack. I mean, this was directed by a guy who who I I mean, let's face it, he directed the original First Blood. So I feel like the the guy has some cred. Um, And it was also uh, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but Billy Ray did a rewrite of this film early on in his career. And Ray has gone on to write some some certainly more high-profile films, such as Hunger Games, Captain Phillips, and he's also doing the upcoming Terminator reboot. So this film had some, okay. had some, had some talent there. I saw the name, but I didn't associate it with anything. I, I, yeah, I didn't realize. Back to Ted Kotcheff, um, I, for whatever reason, I think because of... Uh, John Avildsen directing Rocky. I, for some reason, always connected him with the, uh, with first blood and thinking that, that he, you know, teamed up with Stallone again to direct, uh, the, you know, that first Rambo movie. Cause it kind of has the same, you know, gritty style at certain points and it's a fantastic movie. So I was very surprised to, to see that Ted, Ted directed that as well. And so, yeah, it was definitely, impressed with with the pedigree of of things like that and yeah well and i would say that one of the things that i think uh hurt this film actually is it was distributed by dimension films um the last uh the last london picture also was was distributed by the by the same company dimension films they were the genre banner of miramax films and you know if you look at their slate of films dimension and the weinsteins they are just notorious for sitting on films for yeah. years. They're notorious for just, you know, they have a collection of films that they just sit on. They also will reshoot or re-edit films ad nauseum. And then if they do release them theatrically, they do so, but without really any kind of marketing. It always seemed to me like Dimension, they were that they were that company who, unless it was a Scream film, they didn't want to put any effort <laughs> yeah. or money into giving something else the proper due. I mean, if you... Like I said, if you look at their at their slate of films, it's it's almost baffling to look at. But uh, the films Imposter, Reindeer Games, Cursed, all of these films were done under that under that dimension banner. And all of those films were either reshot or re-edited or they just sat on for a couple years before just dumping it on on video. Sure. But yeah, most of their films are all done within the horror and the sci-fi genre. But yeah, it seems like they're just kind of that company. Like if I was a film director <laughs> you know, or a screenwriter and I saw that Dimension Films had had my film that I'd worked on, I think I'd, I'd you know, get I'd get a little worried and think, OK, well, that's never going to see the light of day. And if it does see the light of day, it's just going to, you know, come and go. Sadly, they, they never really knew yeah. how to market a film, like I said, unless it was a scream movie. Sure. Yeah, I definitely associate Dimension with. The Crow, like for some reason, seeing that Dimension logo, you know, as it comes you know, after fades out of black and seeing Dimension, I think of The Crow and then I think of the, the Scream movies. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh, and also Dracula 2000, which was another one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they, wow. they never really had the most um, the most high profile films in their in their catalog. But I think that's one of the things that kind of hurt this. But th- as this film, uh, Hidden Assassin, this was somewhat difficult for you to find. You know, it is available on DVD and Blu-ray. But what's weird is it's you, you can't find it to rent via streaming. 
I looked it up, and it is. I mean, if if you really wanted to buy the film, then you still can. But uh, yeah, it was a traditional re- release was put out by Dimension Films back when DVDs were you know huge in sales, and then it's also available in a three pack with Men of War and Blackjack, all Dolph Lundgren films. These were all part of a deal when Echo Bridge, the distributor Echo Bridge, they had purchased the rights to a ton of the films in the catalog of Miramax and Dimension, and they just put them out cheaply as part of these various combo packs. So, But it seems like that's one of the only ways that you can that you can get this film. If you want to see it, you'd have to buy it. It's, it's kind of weird that it's one of those films that you just... You, you you're not you're not able to rent unfortunately yeah so um and you you were able to see it uh, we will not get into your your methods but um you you were able to see it so i'm <laughs> i'm glad that you <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you were able to find yeah. it without having to buy it yeah um and i don't know i think it it occurred to me i don't know halfway through the movie that i may be missing some subtitles for some of the, the maybe the foreign language uh, stuff that that is spoken, so I might have missed some in, information, um, but or it just isn't subtitled in, in certain places, so I'm not sure. But okay, yeah. Well, but I think I still, well, you I think st- I still understood what was going on. Yeah, you for the still most got part, the gist. But, yeah, <laughs> you still figured yeah. it out. So I can understand what Dolph was doing. <laughs> yeah, you you never you never contacted me at any point saying, "All right, Sean, I don't know what the hell is going on here." So that's a good thing. <laughs> But, you know, the film yeah. opens up with, uh, you know, the film just dives right into the conflict, which is another thing that I appreciate about it. I mean, the film is pretty short. Um, I don't know if you know, if you saw this or not, but I guess when Dimension got their hands on the film, they actually edited it out 15 minutes um, from the picture. And so mm-hmm. without those 15 minutes, the film clocks in at barely 90 minutes. I mean, I think with credits, as soon as the credits like started, yeah, I think when the credits started rolling, um, it was at about 80, 84 minutes or so. So yeah, a lot of that character development um, had gotten, had gotten axed, unfortunately, but you know, I do like the opening. The film opens with this assassin who is setting up shop underground in a sewer and the shooter has killed the Cuban ambassador to the UN in Manhattan. Um, Because this was done on U S territory, it becomes the job of the U S marshal service to bring the shooter to justice back in the U S Enter Michael Dane. What did you think about these opening scenes? Um, I really liked that it just, like you said, like it just throws you into it. I like starting the movie out with an assassination like this. Um, going through these sewers, I couldn't help but think of the Punisher with with Dolph, you know, and and just some of the, I don't know, imagery. It just felt kind of very similar. So um, that was kind of cool. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up as well, because there are, uh, you know, again, watching these films in this particular order and going back, I saw a lot. But, yeah, there there's a lot of um, imagery that re- that reminds me of The Punisher. And actually, I, I recommend you check out Cover Up. Um, it's, it's, again, not one of his better films. It's a little slow. But the final act in Cover Up mirrors the final act in Hidden Assassin almost identically. So, okay. um, but, yeah, something else I noticed that was quite similar is I thought it was interesting how the target is shot um, right through the, his left eye. And if you saw universal, oh, sure. if you saw universal soldier, what's interesting is Colonel Perry in universal soldier uh, played by uh, character actor, Edo Ross is also shot through the left eye. And the two scenes are almost identical. I kind of wondered, could Ted Kotcheff have been a big fan of Uni- universal soldier or was it purely just a coincidence 
So, well, isn't that how it plays out in The Godfather when they're going after all the like the heads of the five families and the one guy's getting a massage and they shoot him, I think through the through the glasses and it, it might be the left eye there as well. So oh, wow. it could be that they're all just they're- homaging, you know. Francis Ford Coppola. That would actually make more sense than Universal Soldier. <laughs> so I, I could be could be wrong. I'm pretty sure it's it's a bullet through the through the glasses, but I, I couldn't but say for sure. If Universal it's Soldier, right or left, but yeah, but Universal Soldier, it's the same thing. It is it is a bullet through his glasses as well. It, regardless, it's a wicked shot. I mean, it is it is a yeah yeah. It, it's it's a wicked and it's a vicious shot, but. Everyone appears to be certain of the suspect. That's the thing that, you know, you know that there's going to be some various twists and turns in this film. I don't know if you were like me at all, but it's pretty obvious that everything is not uh, kosher. (laughs) And the suspect that they that they have um, that they have pegged this on, they are all just so certain that it is Simone Rosette, um, also also known as uh, Yana Mitlova. Um, but yeah, I just thought this was interesting yeah. how everyone is just 100% certain. And even Michael Dane is kind of like, well, wait a minute, this doesn't fit the profile. I don't know about this. Mm-hmm. Did, did you see that twist coming as soon as they told Michael Dane who the assassin was? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was almost one of those things where throughout that, the first, you know, first, first and second act, really. I I realized pretty early on, like, okay, this is going to be one of those movies where, you know, our hero and the target have to team up and go on the run because, you know, in this case, you know, she's the the suspect and he's got, they've got to try to prove, you know, the, her innocence. Yeah. And so it was really surprising. Like, we're well into the like second act before they even really get on the same side. Like, so I, I think throughout the the first and second act, when when they're still like having these chases and fights, and they still haven't like teamed up yet, I'm like, really, yeah, this, they're they're really drawing this out, this uh, you know, this chase. So that that surprised me, but I, I definitely saw that coming. Um, yeah. Well, and it's funny that, that you agree. So, and I kind of wonder, do you think that the film would be more enjoyable if maybe, because like we, we talked about earlier, you know, uh, the, the third act is where the film really does pick up and where it really does get enjoyable. And oddly enough, it is the third act where they do kind of team up. And so I kind of wonder if maybe the film would have worked better if they had teamed up earlier in the film and it would have been um, a, uh, it would have been a team up or at the very least, maybe it could have been like a Mr. and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Smith type, type kind of story, you know? Yeah. I could have almost seen it working possibly better as well. Like had they known each other and he was involved in this, you know, in, because it happened on us soil, you know, they bring him in and then you find out that they have history that could have been maybe a little oh, interesting. Like maybe they were and- ex-lovers or something like that. Something like that, yeah, because I definitely didn't really appreciate the just the way that you know he starts to investigate her. He, you know, his his partner shows her kind of the, her routine, so they start to follow her, and then just very quickly he becomes like infatuated with her. So that stuff felt a little, a uh, little routine and a little like tired as far as just 
it's seeming like he falls in love at first sight kind of that kind of yeah. thing like that I could have done without unless there had been maybe a history or some some past maybe yeah well there is a real sense of urgency to eliminate Rosette I mean we talked about that there is this upcoming summit that is going to be held in Prague between Prague and Cuba and seeing the threat of a room full of targets quote unquote uh, it is deemed essential that Rosette is captured in just two days. And like you said, we as the viewer, we know that something is up and that Rosette is not who the authorities think she is. Um, they, they say that she is responsible for 10 high-profile assassinations. But, like, you know, Dolph isn't even convinced that Rosette is capable of doing this. And this is where Dane's American contact is his former mentor, Alex Reed. Uh, this character is played by the great John Ashton. Before we, before we, this, this character is interesting yeah. to me. Uh, what do you think of John Ashton in this role? Um, he, I couldn't like place him in anything else really, um, but he felt like the stereotypical American partner, you yeah. know, a little doughy around the edges, the mustache or the receding hairline, the gruff nature. Um, yeah, he, he felt like the, the, perfect partner slash mentor for this character you know a little bit older probably 15 years older than than the hero so it just yeah i i really liked him because he was um a good juxtaposition with with dolph's character and yeah he he, i think he really worked in the movie i didn't realize at the time that this is the same you know guy from uh beverly hills cop Yeah, yeah yeah so didn't realize at the time that, that that was his other kind of probably his biggest other role, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Well, and see, and I think that's where you and I may slightly disagree. I, I think John Ashton is a wonderful actor. I mean, he's a fantastic character actor. He's always been able to play intense extremely well. I mean, he's probably best known from Beverly Hills Cop and also Midnight Run. Midnight Run, he is he is fantastic in as okay. yeah as the uh, uh, as the bounty hunter <laughs> who's on the trail of Charles mm. uh, Charles Grodin. But um, you know, he's he's always been able to play intense. I think probably my favorite role of his is I I always have uh, an affinity for the '80s teen drama, Some Kind of Wonderful. I don't know if you ever saw that with Eric Stoltz. Um. No, I probably missed that okay. one. He is amazing as Eric Stoltz's dad in the film. I mean, he he plays just a, a hardworking father of, of this young teenager who is just investing all of his hopes and all of his dreams into his son going to college. And he just plays the role wonderfully. So I like him. I I kind of wonder if he's the best choice for... Um, for this particular role, you know, here he is, he's Dane's partner, but you know, we later find out actually that he was once Dane's mentor and he's not so much the comic relief, but he's playing the role as someone whose best days are behind him. Kind of like you said, he's, he's gotten a little yeah. doughy. Um, he's maybe gotten a little lazy or inept in his job. I mean, case in point when staking out Rosette, he stops to down a beer. I mean, and so, you <laughs> yeah. know, and I, I guess, I guess where I kind of, um, the, the, the believability factor for me in this role kind of wore off a bit is I, I just have mm. trouble. I just have trouble believing that um, someone like John Ashton was once the mentor for Dolph Lundgren. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, as, as I was watching it, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, you know, who I think would have excelled and been so much better and more believable in this role is if they had cast like Brian Dennehy. 
I, I could see Brian Dennehy um, excelling okay. in this in this in this role as Alex Reed more than John Ashton. Not discrediting John Ashton, as like I said, I think he's an amazing actor. But in this role, I, I think he's slightly miscast, especially when you yeah. when we and I don't want to give the spoiler away right now. But when the twist, the turn is revealed at the end, it's kind of like, okay, no, I, I don't. Yeah. I could could have seen like a. Uh, maybe at this time, maybe he's too young, but like a Powers Booth or oh yeah, that would have been uh, cool. like a Stacy Keach. Yeah. I could see being the uh, being the mentor character. I didn't yeah. even think about that. Yeah, but kind of Powers Booth would have been great. But you know, our our two American authorities—that's uh, Dane and Reed—they begin doing some intel on Reset, and they're spying on her at a dance club where we get some great dance and techno music. Um, yeah. You know, I I don't know about you. You kind of touched upon it already, but. Just the way they are staking her out kind of, to me, felt a little a little gross in, in, in a kind of way. Did you get that as well? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, it's hard to I think because maybe a little bit later when he's uh, sitting, I guess, in the next scene, maybe when they, they're sitting down to, in the wine bar, uh, that stuff felt a little weird. Mm-hmm. Um but certainly this stuff, watching her uh, exercise and, and following her along with that. And then especially the the, you know, the long looks that we get of her dancing mm-hmm. um, in that dress and everything just feels a little uh, voyeuristic, yeah. I suppose. So, Yeah. But, you know, we, we find out that her and her partner own a cafe. We find out that she's a wine collector and she's also a lesbian, you know. I actually, I actually admire and I like these characteristics that they and these dynamics that they bring to this to this character because I don't think that they are it. Um, I feel like in the end, you know, like we talked about, Dane and Reed, their their methods in 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 staking staking out, you know, her her routines and everything. Those feel a little gross, but I like the um, I like the angle that they that they give her, you know, with, with her being this wine collector, she is successful. She is tough, you know, both her and her partner. Um, they, they never come off as, as villainous in any kind of way. Um, which, which is interesting because I sure. feel like films around this time were full of a lot of, a lot of gay panic, which, which, you know, nowadays comes off as comes right. off as pretty offensive. And this is playing it straight and, um, not as offensive. So I will give it that. I, I did like that about it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, they, they, yeah, they never, I mean, there's, they may towards the end of the movie fall into the trope of maybe turning her away from being a lesbian to, in favor of being with him, but that doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's not impossible that she could have, could have been bisexual and been attracted to both her uh, partner and Dane. So, I mean, that's, but I think I would probably guess that the movie wants to make sure that, you know, someone like Dane brings her over back to, or, you know, over to the other side, you know, uh, if I had to guess what they were doing. Hey, it's, there. It's, it's Dolph, right? He, he has that ability. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but yeah, once they've once they've yeah. staked her out and they've they've seen her routines, Dolph's character pretends to be a wine dealer who is looking to unload a couple cases of wine. You know, I I actually kind of like these scenes where he goes into the goes into the cafe with the wine bottle because while it is Dolph and while he does tower over everyone and he is physically fit, I think he is playing these scenes as a regular guy. Or in in this case, he's trying he's pretending to be someone who he's not. 
I, I never once um, thought his acting was lacking in any kind of way in these scenes. I think he is he's doing this. Uh, he's doing he's doing a, a great job at this role. Yeah, I agree. I am. Uh, I will say I don't think the suit that, the suit and the haircut I don't think are doing him any favors. Yeah, here. I was going to ask you. Like, he yeah. just looks. It just looks completely wrong on him, and I don't know if it's the the style or if he. It, I think in that suit he looked like big and scrawny. Like he looked like a tall, scrawny guy in a big, wide '90s suit. I don't know. It's just really. I thought it looked really weird on him. Um, and then throughout the movie, I th- thought his hair was was just wrong. And I, I don't know. You know he, I don't know he, what hairstyle would have worked. He's but. sporting the same haircut that he had in Men of War, and yeah, it is. It is an okay. odd haircut, and I'm I'm trying to remember if back in 1994 to 96, if that kind of hairstyle was in. I mean, I was in middle school then, and none of my friends had that, so <laughs> so so I don't know. But yeah, it is. It 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 doesn't uh, it doesn't look right. I I, I will give it that. It, it's kind of a uh, it's kind of an odd kind of an odd look. Yeah. So, but he does he does go um, with uh, Rosette down to the wine cellar, and he is close to apprehending her. When Reed comes in, who I'm sorry, but <laughs> this guy was a mentor. His 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 days are obviously uh, way way behind him because he's ext- he's not stealthy in this at all. Uh, he is noticed, and we get our first real action sequence here, um, where Reed is fighting off an employee of the cafe while Dane is wrestling with Rosette. Um, the two of them are able to subdue Rosette. They drug her unconscious and put her in the back seat of their car. Yeah, I one of my notes was that I wouldn't have guessed that the first real action scene in the movie would be a fight between like two fifty somethings. <laughs> um because we kinda get their their like kind of wrestling and, and fighting before uh, as Dane is chasing her down, so um that was a bit of a surprise and um but my other note as far as the you know, once it's really Dane versus Rosette was just how unrelenting the fight is. Like he's not treating her as if it's a, I'm chasing a woman. He's chasing a suspect yeah, and assess- you know? a suspect of who's responsible it, for 10 high profile assassinations. So <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, she is. So that was pretty interesting. Well, and she is no ordinary uh, suspect, no ordinary culprit. I mean, she is. I mean, we see that yeah. she is. She is tough. And she handles herself well, and she is able to escape the backseat of the car. Um, and yet again, another yeah. chase ensues. We see Rosette jumps off of a bridge and lands into some water. And Dane, he is he is a dedicated U.S. Marshal. I'll give him that. He jumps after her. I mean, he was sent he was sent to Prague to apprehend the suspect, and he is going to go after her, um, or he's going to die trying. So I, I I do like that about his character. Yeah, um, I I really like the scene in the car with the using you know the trash and paper and stuff that that was available to her and and setting up that kind of escape with the the lighter and everything. So I, I like that. But this this whole section, it, it to me it felt like it felt like it really showcased her strengths and his i want i don't want to say bumbling but just uh, he just comes across very amateur he's not effective i mean he's not (laughs) you know i mean he's not effective at all and i can't help but wonder if maybe he should lose his partner reed 
in this or, or something, you know, because, yeah, you, you would think that, OK, you have this this uh, the suspect, maybe someone would sit in the back seat with her or something. But, yeah, it, it felt like you said pretty amateur that she is able to escape like she does, you know, and, and the fact that uh, that 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 Lundgren loses her. And this isn't the first time he loses her in the, <laughs> right. in the film. But, yeah, we and like you, um, we've we talked about already, but, you know, we find out that. These two characters, they, they're partners now. But yeah, Reed was once a mentor to Dane. And so he's almost fulfilling a father role for both of them. Apparently, Dane sees himself as being indebted to Reed. So he's attempting to return the favor. I can't help but wonder in the 15 minutes of, of footage that were cut from this film, if maybe they explored this relationship and this dynamic between these two characters a little more because they throw it in there and then they just drop it. And we're not given any kind of uh, any more backstory to this. Um, I didn't really think too much about their relationship uh, uh, outside of it just being old partners kind of thing. Um, the young guy and the and the older guy. Like I didn't think too much about the beyond that. I okay. suppose. Okay. Well, Rosette escapes. Uh, Dane and Reed are fired, ordered to go back home. At least that's what. Uh, Dick Powell tells the Cuban diplomats. <laughs> so the, the the character, the the actor who plays Dick Powell, I just thought he was hilarious because he's always just playing angry. But then when the Cuban diplomats are yeah. are gone, he turns around and he's like, oh, "I was just putting on a show for them." So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that guy, and it's he is kind of a that guy. Like he was Eric in uh, Willow, like the kind of Viking like guy in that and uh, uh brad in superman 3 kind of lana lang's you know would be oh that's suitor. right i wondered where i had kind seen of goes him. yeah that's right he was he, yeah, he was the yeah. he was the drunk who uh who was was pissed at Clark. yeah, yeah i yeah. forgot about that the actor's name is gavin yeah. o'herlihy yeah mm -hmm. but i love how he plays this role he plays it like he's way too busy for anything but he's also trying to look good for the cubans so he only gives Dane and Reed shit when he's in their presence, but <laughs> you know, yeah. So the one thing that I, I did want to ask you about this film that we haven't touched upon yet is the film is certainly a product of 1995, but I don't, I don't know if you were <laughs> like me or not, but okay. So it, it came out, it was released in 95, 96, but it looks like something that was filmed in the eighties. I mean, and and I've heard. Did you yeah. pick up on that at all? Oh yeah, I I had a note earlier that it feel it, it's one of those weird like it, I think anything that is filmed in, or set in you know Eastern Europe in and around the nineties feels very mid to late eighties. Exactly. 80s. Um, thinking stuff like uh, the Val Kilmer movie, The Saint. Um, the first Mission Impossible, uh, they all just have this weird look that it, it does feel very 80s. And it even to me felt a lot like a lot of the scenes felt like uh, I don't know if you ever watched the uh, the Highlander TV series, but in like the second season, they go to Europe, they completely move location and move filming and move production to um, Paris and it feels like a lot of this. And, and even though that was you know, shot and, and produced in the mid nineties like this, it, it still feels very. And 80s. see for me, 
So yeah, I definitely picked well, up on I, that the too. The way I've had it explained to me is, and I don't know um, if this is a hundred percent the cause, but you know, when you when you film in various locations, especially you know around Europe or in this case in Prague, you know, you're going to have different lighting and and things of that nature to work with. But to me, this this had almost a grainy quality to it that kind of reminded me of a BBC production. I mean, if you watch a, a you know, an episode mm. of Sherlock Holmes from around the 90s. So this is just that that kind of look, that kind of cinematography. I felt that this looked exactly the same. And what I thought was interesting is some of Lundgren's earlier films, like Universal Soldier or Johnny Mnemonic or even Showdown in Little Tokyo, which were done years prior, I feel that those look so much better and hold up so much better today. Now, granted, those films have had better transfers mm. over the years, and I highly doubt anybody is going to be looking at doing a doing a transfer of hidden sure. assassin but yeah this yeah. one um here it was it was made in 95 96 but it looks like something from 1985 yeah i i totally agree so and what's funny is if you watch cover up um, and I, I can't believe we're going back to the film cover up but yeah if, if you check out cover up it has the same look and i can't help but wonder if because that one was also okay. filmed in in um in a different country or maybe the lighting was different. I don't know. I could be speculating, but I think that's one of the things that kind of hurts this film and kind of um, makes it one of the, one of the detriments to it that kind of uh, has left it unnoticed over the years. But Dane decides to go extremely method in trying to apprehend Rosette. You brought this up already, which, which I, I thought was pretty cool, but yeah, he slices his own arm and yeah, he decides, okay, he's going to cut his own arm. He's going to show up at the residence of, of Rosette's partner and he's going to try to get sympathy from her in trying to find Rosette's whereabouts. And you you really appreciated and liked this angle. Yeah, I thought as far as like a, a, a backstory go or, or a cover up something to. And honestly, when he was doing this, I thought he was going to actually interact with Rosette. I didn't realize that he was planning to see the. The girlfriend. So that was a surprise to me. But I did like I like the scene with him and the girlfriend. I like just their interactions and um, him playing off of her sympathy to try to you know, he's trying to help her because she's on the run, that kind of thing. Um, so I did like these scenes. And going back to just the cutting into his own arm, like I did appreciate that 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 sticks around it's not something that like he's constantly changing the bandages and it's getting you know it's bleeding through and it's being just a uh, it's not you know debilitating or anything like it's not um really holding him back but it is something that you know it, it may slow him down a little bit yeah so well we do get another chase this time one that is slightly staged uh the, the chase is between dane and reed uh dane is making marta believe Dane is making Marta oh, yeah. believe that Reed is following him. Um, yet Marta proves to be smarter than Dane. Uh, they meet up with Rosette at the train station, but Rosette has a bodyguard waiting. Marta and Rosette then escape, and another chase begins. <laughs> this film is just one chase after another. Um, just at this point, it was kind of like uh, where I was. I kept waiting for them to team up and finally like realize that they're working together and that they want kind of the same thing. And, um, so to, to, to still be on the chase at this point in the movies felt like, 
like when are they going to yeah. team up? Like I just was really surprised that they were continuing the chase, you know, aspect at at this like late stage of the movie. So that was that was a genuine, you know, surprise. Well, I think the, the movie, at least the first the first hour, is just one long extended chase. You know, I mean, and it, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. So, yeah. But I, you know, I will say it is one of the more impressive sequences. In the film, I always kind of I always thought the train sequences were always really cool, you know, and this isn't the you know the first time it was done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I always felt that when someone is chasing another person on top of a train, I always felt that it uh, just added um, a, a sense of scope and exhilaration to the film. So I do I do like this scene. I, and I think it does look pretty cool. We have Rosette. She is crawling across the train cars. Um, Dolph is running across of them. Uh, fun fact, I, I, I believe that mm. when Lundgren was filming the, the film, he hurt his leg. He pulled a hamstring, but he is still doing many of these stunts. And in fact, if you watch the scene where um, he is chasing her through the train car before he gets on top, he is limping a bit. And so I, I speculate that that, mm. that was, in fact, a real limp. He was really um, he was really hurt and he was really going for it. This was another part that I think before... He, they go to the take the take to the roof, you know, inside the train. Um, it felt like I said before, this is where I felt like it was a little bumbling and he kind of looks like a fool, you know, just the way he loses her. And he just seems very bad at his job as far as being a U.S. Marshal. So that was, you know, and I guess it, it's maybe more that more showing us how good she is. You know, I, I, I suppose my initial instinct is to focus on what he's doing wrong, but I guess maybe the the point is that what she's doing right. So, but yeah, this the, the kind of until they get up on top of the train, it just felt like um, he just keeps losing her. He just can't get a hold of her, you know. And and that felt I don't know, just kind of well, yeah. And me. you know what's um what's interesting is, and I don't want to give away the twist at the end yet, but I can't help but wonder is, yeah, like we said, he's he's just so bumbling and he's so I don't want to say he's inept, but I, I have to wonder if maybe he's the best if, if his character is the best person for this job. And considering the twist that that comes up later in the film, do you think that he was chosen because they knew he was going to be amateur and he wasn't going to to get the job done? I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't really thought about the beginning of the movie in relation to what happens at the end and, and the setup and everything. Um, that's interesting. I have to, I have to keep that in mind as we kind of keep going. And, but you know, Dane is able, he finally apprehends Rosette and the two of them get to know each other a little better. We, we do get a little bit of backstory. We find out that Dane's mother was killed by Czech police and Rosette was in fact an assassin. However, she is retired. She kind of, um, justifies her assassinations as she was killing murderers and monsters like the ones who killed Dane's mother. So we get a a little bit of um, where the two of them kind of get to know each other, get to understand each other, and they kind of build this alliance. Um, But she is not the guilty one responsible for the murder of the ambassador. And Dane knows this, but as he states to her, he is doing her job, bringing her back to American soil because she is going to get a, uh, she's going to get a fair trial for what she has done. Yeah. I like that it's revealed that 
she, she has killed people. You know, she is a guilty person, but not for this particular instance. So I thought that was interesting. I, I like that it that explains, you know, how she's able to evade him as, as well as she is. Yeah, we haven't talked yeah, about I, I, Marushka Detmers in this role, but yeah, she she's the actress who plays the assassin Rosette. What do you think of her in this role? Yeah, I liked her because I I like you know the action scenes that we get, you know, um, their initial chase. You know, as far as like the action goes, I think she's great. You know, she can definitely hold her own. She's she's a fighter. You know, she's scrappy. She's uh, very strong and um but then like on the other side she's running this uh sophisticated you know wine uh i don't know wine not wine bar but cafe with with you know with her partner and that's i thought a really interesting like way for her to just live out her retirement um so i, I really like the character and uh i can't say that I've ever seen Marushka Detmers in anything yeah, else. Yeah, I haven't so. either. Um, I guess she was in, what was it, the Mambo Kings, I guess. I, I've, I've never seen it, and I haven't seen her in anything else. But, yeah, I, I think she's good in this role. She's, she's tough. She's believable. But w- one of the things I appreciate is she is not overly and unbelievably gorgeous like many other action pictures would cast. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't fall into that, I guess, typical... I think I, you could almost expect them to cast someone like a Sharon Stone oh, yeah. at this time. Some, you know. Yeah, well, around this yeah. time, yeah. Um, we yeah, had uh, not- Sylvester Stallone was doing the specialist, and you know he, which is kind of okay. a similar, yeah, kind of a go. similar. I didn't even think about it, but yeah, specialist and this one are are similar in a lot of ways in terms of their themes. But yeah, and that one Stallone teams up with Sharon Stone, yeah. and then around that time, uh, Warner Brothers also did the film. Fair game, where Cindy Crawford was playing a high-powered attorney on the run, and um, <laughs> you know, oh, so right. it's uh, that's one thing I gotta give I gotta give them yeah. uh, cred for in this one. But I do like that it's not um, an American actress; it's it's someone that you know is from this world. You know, it's someone who is. I guess she's uh, Danish. I th- I think Danish, but uh, she plays someone that that seems like they could be from, you know, Prague or um somewhere in, you know, Eastern Europe. So it yeah, again, just just going outside of the standard, you know, female role uh for one of these yeah, movies yeah. is is nice. Um but Dane is escorting Rosette to the airplane hangar when they are ambushed by some shady hitmen who are planning to collect Rosette and kill her on their own terms. So this is at this point this is where Dane, who has always had an inkling that things are not right, at this point, this is where it does become a team-up picture, and he becomes her her bodyguard or her savior, in a sense, even though she doesn't really seem like one who's going to need saving. I mean, I, I'll say it right now. I think she's she, she she's much better at her job than Lundgren is at his job, so maybe she should be protecting him. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but we do get another action <laughs> sequence. I would argue this is actually probably the best action sequence, even over the train sequence, he's racing to retrieve Rosette and he runs over a guy with a truck and you just see this body being dragged. I thought that was a cool scene. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I was for as long as they show them the truck dragging him, I expected more from it. Like maybe he was somehow still alive and going to grab uh, grab a gun or something, but cause they really linger on showing him 
this guy getting dragged, but I guess that was just a, just a, a you know, stylistic choice to, um, but no, I agree that, uh, I think this is, is probably the better action scene, um, compared to the train, you know, anyways. Um, yeah, this, this was a lot of fun. And this, I wrote down was, this is like the turning point for me. Like this is when it, you know, I was already enjoying the movie even at this point, but here is, is really the turning point where it starts to well, and this get is what even the better. Should have been. So, I, I feel like if, um, if they had, um, if they had started with this sure. kind of um, interaction and relationship between Lundgren and Rosette um, or uh, Dane and Rosette, excuse me, if they had established this maybe a little earlier and had the film be more of this, I, I, I think it would be better because like I said, I think th- at this point, this is where the film really comes alive and I, I'm definitely more more engaged in what mm-hmm. we're seeing because everything that has come come before it, you know, Dane jumping in the water to get her and everything, and even the score that was used in those scenes compared to the score that's being used in these scenes, this is where it's 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 much mm-hmm. better. Yeah. It, it the first half of the movie definitely wants to be that um more espionage thriller and less 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 action movie, and I think it's it's not playing to the strengths of you know Dolph Lundgren, and I I understand like he doesn't necessarily always want to do the same type of movie, so I'm sure that this appealed to him in getting to do some different things and being you know just a, a U.S. marshal and just having to try and chase down a suspect. Like I'm sure that that's part of what drew him to this role. Uh, getting to do a little bit of uh, different. Well, the other thing I appreciate is the fact that Rosette is able to hold her own in these scenes. I mean, it's again, proven that she is, even though she has been captured, you know, quote unquote captured in a sense, um, she is not a damsel in distress. Like you'd see in so many other films. I mean, she is holding her own. I mean, she, she is a badass in these scenes. Sure. So, um, but uh, Dane and Rosette, they are able to escape. They're able to, um, kill all of the attackers or the kidnappers, however you want to refer to them. And as soon as they see each other, they embrace and start and start kissing. Kind of like you said, I kind of wonder if the, the romance between the two of them is really necessary. Uh, it felt a little obligatory. And on the first watch that I had seen this, I thought, you know, oh, come on, it's an obligatory romance. But on repeated viewings, particularly my last viewing, I thought it made... A little set, a little sense, you know, they've, I mean, if you look at these two characters, they have been in a number of life or death situations already where they have both saved one another. And so I think their kissing is not a hundred percent convincing. I, I just don't think Lundgren and, uh, and Detmers have that, that, that chemistry, um, yet they, I don't think they've established it really. Um, but then again, it is an action movie, but I kind of wonder, are they kissing more out of romance or are they kissing at this point because they are just thankful to be alive? It, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a little muddled with, with the angle they're going there. Yeah. And the romance in this movie is really odd because to this point you've only had, and I'm using romance, you know, as a kind of an umbrella for you know, scenes like the, in the dance club where he's basically just, watching her uh, from a distance. And then the scene just before this, where there she's taking a bath. Like I thought that was a very odd scene and, and very uncomfortable and very strange. Just the, the notion of 
he's not going to leave her side. So if she wants to take a bath, she has yeah. to do it there in front of him. So that whole sequence, we, we get a lot of really good information because they actually, uh, actually have a chance to talk, but you know, it, it's being set up in this scene that is, you know, her undressing and, and bathing. And so that is a little strange. And then, you know, cut to this next scene with, you know, this big action scene and then they kiss. And it's like, uh, part of me wonders if part of that, uh, the longer runtime for the, uh, I guess the, the other version, is there something that we miss as far as a more, more relationship building, more romance? You know, is there something that happens? Uh, do they spend the night together? Because if they do, that might, make more sense for a scene like this where they embrace after taking out all these guys. But then that's the case. I don't know when they could have done anything unless it was while she's in custody, you know, after the the bath. And that seems even yeah, worse. Yeah. No, you know? and I, so. I wonder if maybe it would be, I mean, I go back and forth. I mean, should they have kept them as a couple or should they have just made them, you know, form this alliance where they just respect each other I, I don't know. But yeah, like you said, it is it is a little odd, especially considering that we see that she has a a healthy and a, and a solid relationship with her uh, with her partner early on that yeah. she would go to Dolph as quickly as she did. But like I said, on my most recent viewing, I guess I chalked it up that they were just so thankful to be alive. I, I don't know. But, you know, yeah. it's at this point they, they do form an alliance where they are having each other's backs and we get another cool scene again. I wish the movie could have been more like these final 25 minutes. But yeah, we um, they have each other's back and we get an awesome scene where they're driven off the road by some more hitmen. Lundgren is fending them off with two handguns and Rosette is using a shotgun. I mean, this is this is what the film should have been. I mean, and it's a cool looking scene and they both look really cool and really comfortable handling these firearms, handling these weapons. Yeah, I, I flat out love this this little sequence and I like that. I forget how it plays out that she, he, she kind of disappears out of frame or she's, you know, ducking and hiding for, for part of it. And, and he's shooting at them. And then she pops up with the shotgun as if like, it, it, so I guess they, you know, were communicating while they were both had their heads down and, and it was just so perfectly timed and just carried out perfectly where, you know, as soon as he lets up, she pops up with the shotgun and just blasts, you know, the guy in the, behind them, I think. And yeah, I really love this, this little scene, especially right off the tail of that other great gun fight, you know? So it's like another, it's like a nice little, little yeah, dessert yeah, the, the film, meal, It's given you know? itself a little time to breathe, but then it's picking right back up. And that, that's that's what I appreciate about it. And yeah, Dane and Rosette, they at this point, Dane, he still trusts his mentor slash partner, Alex Reed. They find refuge at Alex Reed's place. Alex leaves and we see that Reed may not be entirely truthful. Spoiler alert. Did did John Ashton's character, Alex Reed, did his character arc surprise you at all? It did, I think, until they show up here at, at his apartment. Then I think it dawned on me as he was leaving. Like, as Alex says, you know, you guys stay here. I'm going to go. I forget what he tells them. But basically, 
tells them to stay put and then leaves. And that seemed odd. So that's kind of when I knew like, okay, he's, he's involved with the, uh, Cubans that he teams up with, or I forget kind of towards the end, which, which people, like which, uh, which side everyone's yeah. on, but, uh, well, and a sniper as, as, yeah. uh, as Reed is gone at this point, we see the, the wheels are turning in, in Lundgren's head where he's figuring out, okay, something isn't right. A sniper shoots Rosette in the chest through the window. So the character of Rosette is killed at this point. Um, we get some great, some great emotion from Lundgren here as he holds Rosette's dying body. Um, to my knowledge, I think this seems to be the first time in Lundgren's career where we really get to see him crying and showing emotion. He did a little bit of it in I Come in Peace, but this is where we really get to see him emoting. Um, and I did not expect the character of Rosette to die. I, I mean, she had gotten injured, but I thought this was, I thought that was kind of ballsy yeah. for her, for her character to, to die like she does at this point in the film. Yeah, that I thought that was a genuine shock. Like I, I could, they telegraph the, that someone's going to start shooting through this window. You know, I think any time in a movie, especially in an action movie or something with a lot of gunplay in this movie, you know, never trust a big open window and especially never, you know, anytime someone starts walking around with a big window and, and they're on the run, like that's, you know, generally a, you know, pretty good sign that some, some, some shooting is about to start happening. So, but yeah, like I said, just shocked that she just takes one to the chest and that it's so matter of fact and over like, yeah. So suddenly. Yeah. Well, and it know? is at this point in the film, uh, the character of Rosette is, yeah. is dead. And we see that, I guess, I guess Dane had, uh, had developed an infatuation with, with this character. And so he is, he is understandably pissed off and wants to deliver justice. Um, it's at this point where, like we said, that the film becomes a real Dolph Lundgren picture and we, it's a great locale. I, I love, you know, this was yeah. shot on location in Prague. Uh, Lundgren is scaling the sides of buildings, trying to nab the assassin. He's also darting through a parade, trying to foil another assassination attempt, seeing as how the Cuban ambassador, was shot from a storm drain. Uh, Michael Dane has his eye on the nearby storm drain. Um, so Dane climbs down to the sewer to find, spoiler alert, the assassin is none other than John Ashton's Alex Reed character. Um, what would you like to add about these scenes? Um, I wasn't sure. So he, you know, like you said, he goes out outside the apartment or the hotel or, or kind of whatever building that, that they're holed up in. And he takes out the shooter. And at this point, I didn't, I almost expected this guy, whoever was shoot, whoever shot, you know, Rosette, I thought was the kind of the weaselly sidekick to the Cuban ambassador. Um, he was very an antagonistic throughout the movie. Like every time that he and his boss popped up, he was giving, I think, Alex and, Dane, you know, just grief yeah. and just being a kind of a dick. Um, so I really, I expected him to be under the mask. And then um, I was really distracted because you never see who that shooter is. They never pull the mask off. They never go back to, you know, look at the body to see who's, you know, doing this. So I thought it was strange that now, you know, basically there are two snipers in this, in this movie. So I don't know that point which one carried out the assassination yeah. in the beginning of the movie you know 
Um, so I thought that was a little strange to introduce a second sniper that we don't ever get the identity of, especially when you could have, as we're going to see, they're going to tie the Alex to, I keep saying Cubans, yeah, are so they Cubans? they're diplomats. Uh, um, you, so you have the main Cuban diplomat, Terreno, and then I'm assuming okay. the other guy is, and see, that's one of the things is, okay, okay so I'll just, I'll just jump to it right now. Uh, we find out that Reed has been working for Terreno, who is the Cuban diplomat who has shown just complete disgust for Americans, it seems like, especially Dane's character since the film's beginning. Um, and yeah, Reed, who is looking to retire, finds out that Torino pays well and has been working for him for a couple of years, carrying out uh, various assassinations. And so the whole twist, I don't mind so much the fact that they made Dane's character the assassin. What I what I have difficulty with, and again, perhaps this could be what was left on the cutting room floor, I don't know. But what I have a slight problem with is that character of Torino, though those Cuban diplomats who were just being such dicks, we really only saw them in two scenes. And so I feel like the twist comes way too late, considering we only saw that character in maybe not even five minutes of screen time. And so it's it's just kind of it's just kind of weird. And yeah, right. like you said, is he a diplomat? Is he an ambassador? They just kind of gloss over those parts. I mean, they give a little bit of exposition in the beginning, but for them to throw a twist like that to where you know the 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 ultimate baddie, the the main bad guy, is this character who we really only saw on on screen for just a handful of minutes. To me, that the the, the payoff for that was not. It felt like a bit of a jip. Um, I I like the scene between Alex and Dane. You know, in the sewer when it's it's revealed that Alex is is the sniper and everything. I liked their interaction together and and his explanation of why he's doing this and, and everything. And I, um, the idea that, you know, if you've been in the business as long as I have, you know, th this is going to be you someday because they're going to, they're going to screw you over, you know, for 20 years, like they did me and, and that kind of thing. So I did but like that. I almost that. kind of wanted a little bit more of that. And maybe again, maybe that's something that was left on the cutting room floor, but we really never, we never really never got a sure. sense of, of urgency on behalf of the Reed character to where he was struggling financially or anything like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe, yeah, maybe they didn't want to foreshadow it yeah, too much. Perhaps. You know, I think most movies, I think, would. So it so, is odd that they did Being didn't. a Lundgren storms into For the sure. summit party, ready to apprehend the character of Torino. This is a cool scene. I know that, that's what this I was going to say. Great. This is such a this is such a sick scene because yeah, yeah uh, just and this is what fans of you know if you are in 1995 96 you know combing through a video store and you see this film Hidden Assassin starring Dolph Lundgren and you pick it up, sure you may be a little disappointed that uh, it, it's not super action packed those first 45 minutes, but these these final few minutes are awesome and this is what fans of Dolph Lundgren came to see. I love this. He walks into this uh, into this big party, and he is just covered in blood. I just love these scenes. He is pissed. <laughs> yeah. He is ready to deliver justice. He he screams that he needs a gun. Give me a gun. They give him a weapon, and it, it, it's it's a cool scene. Yeah, uh, yeah, I totally agree, and I love that it leads to yeah. a chase, another chase. So uh, it, yeah, it is it is you're getting these action beats like fast and and so many of them kind of in this in this section of the movie so it, i didn't have a lot of notes because it was just i'm just 
kind of sucked into the movie at this point and just really, really into it. So yeah, I, I really like the, just confronting the guy and, and just flat out. I know. Uh, saying he's under arrest and, and going through the, um, and you know, you know something that else that I actually process. like about it as well is the fact that, you know, for the most part, yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, Dolph comes off as a little, um, as, as a little silly or inept in, in, in his job. But I like the fact that he is for the most part being by the book. I mean, for the most part he is, we don't really see him being dirty in any mm. kind of way. He's not using excessive force. I mean, if you look at it and I don't know too much about the inner workings of, of a U.S. Marshal, yeah. but I never once thought to myself, you know, Oh, come on. Uh, a law enforcement official would not do that. I mean, he is being, you know, he, he is doing his job and he is, he's following the rules. That's something else I appreciated about it. That's a great point. Yeah. I hadn't really considered that, that yeah, he doesn't go out of his way or it's not a diehard movie where he's just going to kill every, you know, henchman that he comes across, you know? Well, I mean, I guess they, did just have the the shootout at where they were trying to take her, but I mean that was a uh, people shooting at them. So I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I didn't really have a point there, but but you know um, we do get a final shootout on the rooftop of the building where the summit is being held, and Dolph shoots both Torino and Torino's right hand man on the rooftop. And again, like we said, if maybe a little more time had been spent with these characters, and again they can't. I guess if they spend too much time with them, then the twist goes away. But, you know, I think one of the things that kind of hurts this film is there really isn't a, a solid villain throughout the film. And, you know, and I've said it before and I'll, I'll say it again. You know, if, if you want a film to be memorable, regardless if it's a Dolph Lundgren picture or, you know, any movie, I feel like you need to have a villain that is that is great. And the fact that this film kind of dances around who the villain could be and then we find out who the villain is in those final few minutes. That's one of the things that I think hurts it slightly, you know. So, uh, but we do sure. find out that the character of Powell, he is still going to make Rosette the main perpetrator, seeing as how she's dead. Um, if it was unearthed that it was Reed, mm. his wife wouldn't be able to collect his pension, which is again kind of showing how corrupt the government is. But I, I, I found this, 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 this was just, <laughs> it was so disrespectful to the character of Rosette. You know, the fact that not only do they kill her character off, but they're still going to make her the uh the, the fall guy or the, or the fall woman for these crimes w what did you think about that turn i think it was in this in this movie in this setting i thought it was completely yeah. understandable because i liked the notion that you know why should uh reed's family have to suffer for, for what he did i mean yeah they're they're essentially then covering it up and and hiding the truth. Rosette's it, character, she did commit assassinations. You know what I mean? She, you know. Right. That's so, what I was going to um, say. Yeah. Yeah. Had she just been an, in, you know, completely innocent party, you know, from, from the get go. Yeah. That would be really tough. And it'd be, you'd expect for Dane to really put up a fight, but he understands that she wasn't perfect. She was not a, an ordinary citizen. She was, you know, someone who had committed crimes and at, at some level she is guilty of, of something just like this. Maybe not a, a high profile, you know, political figure, but, She's, she has assassinated people, so for her to go down for this crime, you know, maybe is fitting. And Well, 
Powell does offer Dane another job in the Middle East, but Dane declines. And the film ends with Lundgren just walking off across the city of Prague. His future is left ambiguous in the dance club scene that we, uh, or excuse me, the song that was played in the dance club earlier in the film. That's how the film ends. So we have, we have Dane's character just walking across the city of Prague. We have no idea where he's going, what he's going to do. But then we get this uh, song number. We, we see him, we see him remembering Rosette because we do get those dance club scenes, a couple of those. I guess we're to believe that he is remembering her and that I, I guess she's going to live on. But what, what did you think about about the ending? These scenes, just not only Dane's future, but also the, uh, the, the, the way the film just ends and this music that comes in. <laughs> um, well, as far as like his future goes, like I at this point, that's when I like, I don't know, decided or realized that this could have been a character that. I, I would have liked to see pop up in a sequel, you know, um, could have been a, a completely different scenario, but I could have almost seen this one being a recurring role that he plays, you know? So, you know, I, I would have liked to have seen another movie about this character. And as far as like, you know, the, I like the, the visual of him just walking away. Um, I like that. It's for, for quite a while. It, it just, remains a single shot of, of him in real time, just walking across this plaza. So I did like that. The use of the song is fine. Um, and showing little clips is, I don't know. I don't, it's never my favorite thing to show a flashback in relation in, in to make it like seem like, Oh, this is what the character's thinking. So we're going to show you visually what, you know, a flashback that represents what, is going through his head right now because it's not really how it's not always how people really, how, you know, memories really work. <laughs> um, I get it, but it, yeah, I didn't even think point, about it, that. It yeah, I could fine. see this character coming back. What's interesting is in the fugitive, um, Tommy Lee Jones's character who was, was all, who was a U.S. Marshal. Yeah. Um, they, they yeah. resurrected or they didn't resurrect, excuse me, but they brought back that character for a sequel. So yeah, I, I guess I could, I could see that as well. And maybe with him losing the character of Reed, maybe maybe Lundgren would be a little more effective in his in his job as a U.S. Marshal. I don't know. So <laughs> but as we wrap yeah. this up, um, I always like to do two recommendations, uh, one recommendation as a Dolph Lundgren film and then the other recommendation as a movie itself. And, you know, this was again, this was a film that you did not know about at all so you went into this completely cold thank you again for for watching it i hope that you i hope that you did enjoy it on some kind of level and i hope that if anything um it does make you want to check out uh the other things that lundgren did back in the early to mid 90s um no thank you for having me and and thank you for you know showing this movie to me because i did enjoy it um uh it, it, it did kind of, uh, it felt a little strange at the beginning because it did feel like a weird role for him to be playing in a, in a, you know, a movie that didn't feel like it was in set in the right time period, that kind of thing. But as it progressed, like I, I really dug the pacing. I like how each scene took them to the next scene in, in a pretty straightforward and, and logical way. And then as it progressed, we just get more and more action and uh, really 
great action scenes. So, um, yeah, I would definitely recommend this movie. And uh, see, and I, yeah, I, I, agree I enjoyed with you. it. I think as a Dolph Lundgren film, I think it's a great performance. You know, I couldn't see too many action stars from the eighties and the nineties taking on a role like this. He's a fairly ordinary guy who is vulnerable. Um, I could see maybe Sylvester Stallone would have done something like this, but I certainly couldn't see Seagal taking on a role like this, Van Damme taking on a role like this, Jeff Speakman, any of those other guys who, you know, um, came up out of the 80s and the 90s. Uh, Lundgren, he does he does fight, and he does exhibit some sure. violence in a few action sequences. But, you know, for the most part, he is just playing a by-the-book U.S. Marshal who's doing his job. And it was, yet again, another unique, interesting role for Dolph to take on. And I have to give him major credit for that because he is believable in this role, and he's doing a great job selling it. As as a movie itself, you know, I absolutely it's, agree. It's kind of tough for me to recommend. I you know, I recommend it, you know, on on Lundgren's performance, but it, it's tough for me to recommend just because of how basic mm. it is. You know, it's 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 pretty much just a straightforward action film. the The twists are pretty evident from from a mile away, and for me, there was really nothing about it that that really stands out. And so it's kind of no wonder that this was one film in his filmography that you really just don't hear too much about. Um, it was dumped on home video. And as opposed to Men of War, I think Men of War is one film that should have gone theatrically, you know, because I think Men of War just stands out so much better. Uh, this is one film that I, I hate saying this, but I kind of wonder if it going direct to video may have been the right move. Because I think if it had gone theatrically, I don't think it, I don't think it really would have done too well. The, the villains aren't very memorable. So as a result of that, it's kind of, it's kind of forgettable. You know, I enjoy it because of Dolph, but besides his performance, there's really nothing else there to keep your attention as opposed to his previous efforts. Mm. This is one that I think, I mean, look, I'll, I'll watch Lundgren in anything that he does, but as opposed to things that he has done previously um, before this film and then after this film, this is one that can kind of be just kind of glossed over. I would recommend it purely only for completists of Lundgren's work. Anyone else, I would say it's not one that's um, mm. that's that definitely needs to be seen. But I am glad that I am glad that you enjoyed it. And, and like I said, I enjoyed it as well. Um, but purely as yeah, as a Dolph yeah. Lundgren vehicle, I guess you know. Sure, I think I like. Um her role especially and and just the the shock factor of her uh taking that that hit to the chest and and not making it because i think that uh, obviously that's the big point of the movie is him trying to first ca capture her and then then keep her alive and and so that was a a big twist for me that was the kind of the twist yeah that, and before we go, I'll let you uh, plug or um, give a shout out to anything else that you're working on. We talked about Real Comic Heroes, but okay. you also have the other podcast, Watchmen Minute. Is there anything else that uh, that that you're working on that you'd like to give a shout out to? Um, yeah, it would definitely be those two uh, podcasts. So if you want to check out Real Comic Heroes, you can search Real Comic Heroes with real with two e's. Um, if you search that in pretty much any uh, podcast app or you know just search online. You'll find us. You'll find our, our Twitter page, our Facebook page. Um, you can find us on iTunes, just search real comic heroes and pretty much the same goes for Watchmen minute. If you, um, if you like the movie Watchmen, we, uh, uh, my 
co-host over there, Eric. Um, we are going through the director's cut of Watchmen, and we are going through it, looking at it a minute at a time as part of the movies by minutes kind of sub-genre of podcast. Uh, it's sort of a, a unique way to look at a movie uh, and then instead of just reviewing one, you know, as as a whole, you know, we we examined the that's some serious minutia, dedication, so. I have to say. <laughs> so, I had no idea. I had no yeah. idea that those minute uh those movie um, it's, by it's minute all... uh podcasts even existed until you and I first started talking a little while back. But um yeah, there there's plenty out there and I gotta I gotta give you guys um my, my hat's off to you guys because yeah, that that is some dedication. Good for you. Especially considering the film Watchmen was was maligned there, there's there's those camps who really love it but then there's those other people who strongly disliked it so the fact that you guys are picking apart that movie minute by minute is some dedication <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot of fun and, and the whole you know genre was kicked off by uh the guys over at star wars minute they they started this whole thing you know looking at at all the star wars movies one minute at a time and um, for them, it was just, well, they wanted to start a podcast and they wanted to talk about Star Wars and specifically, you know, the movies. And then for them, it was like, well, if we just put out an episode talking about the first movie or we'd put out one episode talking about each movie, we'll be done in three episodes. And then what are we going to talk about? So they started to look at ways to to really spend time examining these movies. And then one of them had the idea to like, well, what if we just broke it all up into minute chunks and we'd only look at that one minute and it, it, you would be amazed at how much stuff happens in a minute you know i mean sometimes you have maybe a driving scene that takes a long time and nothing really happens in a minute um, but then other times you have entire fights fight scenes happen in a minute or um, a lot of great dialogue or uh, just a lot of great performance so there's a lot of stuff you can really if you really just look and, and focus on that, um, it's a great way to, you know, obsess over something that you're really into. So it's not for everybody, you know, and it's not for if you're just a casual fan of certain movies, then I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. But I would definitely say check out the moviesbyminutes.com and there are over over 95 other podcasts that are doing the same format or very similar format. Some shows go like five minutes at a time through their movie. Some stick with the one minute, you know, a day, Monday through Friday. That's what, that's how we're tackling it. So check out the list and you can see the entire list of all the uh, various movies. So if you have a favorite movie, it's a good chance that is there it's a master of the universe one minute at a time. Movie by so minute? Let's do it. There's not, but uh, there's, that, that that just means that, <laughs> yeah do it <laughs> that just means that there's so, room for one so all right well yeah. hey, travis thank you so right. much for coming on and for uh discussing this one this is you know this is one film that not many know about and i feel pretty certain in saying i think this could be the only episode out there devoted to this movie so <laughs> so so i i'll uh i'll take some credit for that but yeah no hey thank you so much for joining me i do appreciate it to everyone out there who is listening please feel free to rate and review the show on itunes stitcher or wherever else you go to subscribe we always appreciate the reviews and seeing as how michelle sweeney's song this time 
was played twice in the film, I thought it was only fitting that we end this episode with this dance mix that was played both in the first 15 minutes of the film and during the end credits. So for your listening pleasure, here's a sample of This Time by Michelle Sweeney from Hidden Assassin. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast. (laughs) 